from a municipal issuer perspective, issuers right now are trying to find any money that's laying around that they can pick up and help to fill their budget gaps. And refinancing older, higher rate debt is a fairly straightforward way to do that. From our remote offices in the New York tri-state area, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. For this episode of our podcast, we present an excerpt from our weekly wrap with our co-head of investment-grade research, Aaron Lyons, and our senior municipals analyst, Pat Luby. If you are an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We are living a surreal life right now, but our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to our more than 15,000 readers across global credit markets. Please enjoy the weekly wrap with Aaron Lyons and Pat Luby. So let's turn to our guest today. I have Patrick Luby, who is our municipal strategist. And Pat, thanks for joining us today on the weekly wrap. I think munis are an asset class that have seen a lot of interest this year and the pressures on state and local governments due to COVID has very much been in the news. It's hard to believe that we're only one and a half weeks out from the election and only a week out from the race being more or less called. But let's start there and think about what the election could mean for the muni space. As a candidate, Joe Biden promised to unwind the Trump tax cuts, and that stance has been reaffirmed by some of the post-election releases from his transition teams. I know there's you know, the big debate with who controls the Senate, and we won't know until those runoff races are called, and the market's clearly pricing in that tax increases are are likely not coming anytime soon, but let's suppose they are able to pass these through. And can you just recap what that means and discuss the potential impacts on the muni market and relative values? Sure, sure. Thanks for having me, Aaron. And uh, good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. So as a candidate, what we heard from Joe Biden was he wanted to unwind the Trump tax cuts. He has since adjusted the, the verbiage that he wants to change some elements of the Trump tax cuts, which probably, I think, improves the positioning. He has reaffirmed that he does not want to raise taxes on anyone making less than 400000 but he does want to restore the 39.6% maximum federal income tax rate for the highest earning individuals. It's unclear if he is contemplating a repeal of the cap on the SALT deduction or not. There's certainly political support preceding the election for that element, but it has not been been brought up. The other key piece of the change to the Trump tax cut would be raising the corporate income tax rate. And of course, prior to the tax cut, the rate was 35. And what the Biden-Harris plan that's been put out there would be to raise the corporate tax rate to 28%. He's also talked about changing the uh, the capital gains tax rate for individual taxpayers earning more than a million dollars a year. We'll set that aside for now. The change in the maximum individual income tax rate from 37 to 39.6 would increase demand a little bit, but munis right now for those maximum tax bracket investors are, are so attractive relative to taxable alternatives, we really don't see a, a significant uptick in demand. However, because of the cap on the SALT taxes, it could actually result in some, in some additional incremental demand for double exempt papers. So New York, California, 
Minnesota, some of the high high tax states where there's the the real benefit because the the combined effective tax rate is is going to be really high. On the change in the corporate tax rate, that's part of what's driving the issuance and taxable, and we can come back to that later in the discussion. But the large discrepancy between the individual income tax rate and the corporate tax rate uh, changes the the object, you know, the the relative value for potential investors. With a corporate tax rate right now at 21%, that makes A-rated munis attractive, you know, where the market is right now. A-rated munis are attractive right now for investors in the 21% bracket. They are not attractive to for AA yields. If you change the rate, you know, if you change the rate right now where the market is right now, from 21 to 28, still leaves AA muni yields unattractive to those investors that obviously boost the yield for for A-rated and you know bonds for, to those investors. So I don't think that we're going to see a huge uptick in demand immediately if that were to change to 28%. I do think that over the course of an interest rate cycle, it would be constructive for the market because the higher tax rate on corporations, which would mean banks and insurance companies and broker-dealers, it would make it easier for them to justify buying munis when when the relationships are right. Thanks, Pat. And this is where I think your work on the muni market is really beneficial, not just to institutional investors, but I know we get a lot of readership just from people trying to figure out what they should do with their own portfolios and Mm -hmm. hedge the taxes. So thinking along the Biden agenda a little bit more, do you think there's specific sectors or issuers that are more likely to be affected by the potential plans? Absolutely. There's there's a couple of sectors that are are, are called out, not as many sectors, but what we think of as sectors are, are mentioned by name in some of the policy statements from the, the campaign. First and foremost would be would be airports. So airport and airport revenue bonds. Would, would benefit from a promised doubling of the a- FAA's airport improvement program. Now that the, the AIP is what they call it, provides grant money to cover 75 to 95% of the costs of eligible projects. It's on a sliding scale between the, you know, based on the size of the airport, the smaller airports get a larger grant percentage than the, the larger airports do. And, and there are specific projects that are eligible in fiscal year 20, which is almost over the cumulative total grants, 3.2 billion. So that's as of September 24th. So doubling that would provide a significant uptake or uptick in the amount of grant money available to the airports for their, their renovation projects. And he has also said that he is in favor of a new grant program for major airport renovation projects. He has not provided additional uh, specificity on that, but I think the fact that he's looking at two different line items to send money to airports is certainly constructive for the space. Additionally, increased funding for healthcare and hospitals could improve you know, the credit safety of hospital revenue bonds. He's also specifically uh, looking to increase support for rural hospitals, and we know, you know there's not a lot of debt out for smaller freestanding rural hospitals, but it's it's an area of, of ongoing concern among you know, hospital investors. So he has specifically called out increased support for rural hospitals, so that could be helpful there as well. 
But we all know that as vice president and as senator, Joe Biden was a regular writer on Amtrak. He's a fan of, of mass transit. He has spelled out in his infrastructure plan. He'd like to see more spending on the existing transit lines. He specifically mentioned funding for a new Hudson River train tunnel. He wants to double the, the speed, the average speed for Amtrak service between New York and D.C. So he's looking to, to fund the Hudson River Tunnel and improve the, the transit time for the existing rail projects. He's also looking to provide a boost for funding to complete the California High, High Speed Rail Project. And also environmental funding could send more money for clean, you know, clean water funds. So water and sewer bonds, even though they already trade pretty tight, they could actually see you know, more money coming into the sector and, and a little bit tighter spreads there. Thanks for that. And I know when we are in the New York area, we overlook the Hudson and we have seen them out kind of scoping out where a potential tunnel could go between New York and New Jersey. So we, we had to call. We saw lights late at night. <laughs> We're wondering what was happening right there. They were trying to figure out the tunnel situation. So just, you mentioned airports, and obviously everyone knows this has been under a lot of stress, and Moody's just revised their outlook for O'Hare to negative, and we know passenger demand remains well below the pre-pandemic levels. How are you thinking about valuations in this space? It's, it's interesting. I think airport bonds remain pretty popular because of the incremental spread that's available on on airport bonds the the pace of issuance for airports has definitely slowed down it seems like almost every major airport has capital improvements that are you know prompting them to be in the market with regularity but they've, they've slowed that down the airports derive their revenues from the airline activity and it's easy to confuse you know especially for, for your clients, it's, it's easy to extrapolate the difficulties facing the airlines to the airports. And that's not necessarily the case. As long as an, an airline needs to maintain a gate presence to maintain you know, the ability to fly and generate revenue, they're going to need those gates at the airport. and They're going to need to participate in paying the revenues for the airport. So certainly the, the stress that the airlines are under is affecting airport bonds and airport spreads. Passenger volume is creeping back ever so slowly. The Transportation Department yesterday announced September total passenger traffic, which was down 65% versus September of 19. That's an improvement. I think it was down 71% or 69% in September. The, the DOT data aligns pretty nicely with the daily data that we see from the TSA. Many of you probably see that. We've certainly cited it. Roger King has cited it in his airline reports. So the, the TSA data is posted every day and their data it shows uh, you know, a, a slight uptick in activity for October as well, down 64% in October as opposed to down 68% in September. But it's, it's, it's a very slow improvement. I am heartened by you know, what you pointed out for the, the spread for you know, leisure-related spreads in the IG market. Business travel and travel in general needs a vaccine, needs, needs improved testing. There are some, some good things going on in the space, however. So, for example, San Francisco Airport has been in their expansion because of the reduced volume of activity in the airport. 
they have sped up their construction schedule. So that's, that's a good thing. Denver Airport has been able, on their expansion, their renovation, they've been able to get things done ahead of schedule as well. So there's, there's some constructive things going on, but it is, it is still very slow going. And the, 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 you know, the credit watch from the rating agencies is a reminder that, you know, the, the revenues for airports, it's going to take longer than the general economy to recover. But the airports also have, you know, they entered this with abundant cash on hand. So not surprised, but downgrades do not expect defaults. You know, just to throw out a couple on this is one in, in one of the recent airport reports as, as of the most recently ended fiscal year. SFO, San Francisco Airport, had 385 days cash on hand. Denver Airport had 646 days of cash. Charlotte Douglas had 1,400 days cash on hand. So, you know, there's, there's ample liquidity for most of these airports to get through, but they've got some wood to chop. And if, you know, back in the scenario, if, if we see, you know, infection rates pick up again or a second wave that's serious, then, you know, this will add some stress to everybody and, and airports would not be immune. But it does feel like we've got a little bit of room for optimism, but it could be easy to get over the tips of your skis on the airports, though, because they are going to be among the, the latest, probably the last to recover when air travel comes back, and especially the airports reliant on international air travel, because that remains way lower than the domestic travel. Okay, thanks, Pat. So let's stay on the, the COVID topic for a second. And as I mentioned, we started the week so optimistic that we had a way out of this. And now reality is setting in a little bit towards the end of the week as we're seeing these spiking cases. How are you sensing muni investors are thinking about this balance of optimism and the near-term risks? That's a great question. I think it's, it's one of the most interesting facets of this economic cycle that we're going through is the, the surprising strength of some of the tax and government receipts that have been coming in. I'll go through these in a little bit, but you know, the sales tax collections have certainly been helped because so many of, of us and the, and the economy at large continue to work from home and generate sales tax revenues and all sorts of other revenues. So that, that's been the good news. Certainly spending has increased for almost every governmental unit. Not every governmental unit has has embarked yet on the the right amount of you know spending cutbacks. But uh, the good news, I, again, I think is is the surprising strength in some of these tax revenues, sales tax revenues in particular. But total state revenues aren't necessarily in the same way. So New Jersey, for example, which will be in the market next week for four billion. Through September, year-to-date sales tax collections are up 1.3%, but corporation tax is down 11%. So total general fund revenues year-to-date are down 10.5%. So some cuts are appropriate. If there's additional aid forthcoming from Washington to help fill in the the pandemic-related budget holes, that will be a good thing. I would like to point our listeners to one of my favorite reports, other than the ones I write, that comes out every week. Chris Sutter, who follows Economics Force on Thursday evenings, puts out a an update on the economic indicators for the week. So that's where we'll you'll get a a good discussion of whether it's GDP or unemployment, or whatever. But he also includes in that a table of a variety of economic indicators that are really really helpful to see what's going on geographically. So he he has a, a table 
for uh, hotel revenues, for restaurant bookings. There's a number of helpful indicators in there that are, are really leading indicators. It'll be a, a good preview of what are sales tax collections, what's what's the general level of economic activity going to look like in these in these areas. And, and some are showing surprising strength and some such as New York City, I mean, you can see what, what's going on with the hotel bookings there and restaurant bookings, it's gonna to continue to be a challenge. So uh, it's not as bad as it could be nationally. There's certainly lots of pain but the continuing strength in some of these, these sales tax revenues provides some constructive perspective. Thanks, Pat. And I know we received a notice that our property taxes are seeing a special assessment to deal with city-related COVID expenses. It says it's one time, so we'll see. <laughs> we'll see on that. But let's focus on our local area. New York City and the New York MTA are both still dealing with significantly reduced revenues. I don't know if you've been in the city at all. I haven't been in the city since February. But you know, how are these how are the city and the MTA doing? And how are you thinking about the prospects for some federal relief for this particular area? Yeah, so New York State, New York City, and MTA are obviously inextricably linked. They've got different stories going on. At the state level, you know, New York has had tax receipts come in higher than, than budgeted. Part of that, unfortunately, though, is probably, well, that, that's the good news. Certainly the expenses have gone up. But part of what New York State has done in order to keep the budget in balance is they've cut back aid to local governments. So that affects New York City, of course, as well. New York City sales taxes, because the city levies a sales tax, and there's also a sales tax in the, the commuter area that MTA benefits from, because so many of the resident, you know, the workers in New York City are working from home, sales tax collections in Westchester County have been off the chart for the, the counties in New York City and the, the taxing district, those, those tax collections have not, not been good. New York City has not yet really, and actually New York, you know, Governor Cuomo, in both cases, they really haven't started with their, their red pens yet, striking out a lot of other expenses. New York City in particular is going to have a challenging time. New York MTA, I think, has a, a, a better shot of getting some aid from the federal government. They've asked for $12 billion from the feds. I think that the pre-election politics is, has been a hindrance to getting some, some aid out of New York. Post-election, I think it's constructive that we've heard Leader McConnell talking about some sort of an, an aid package. I, I do think that there's some political support for MTA to get some aid out of Washington. Do they get the full 12 billion? I don't think so. MTA has been making preparations to borrow additional funds from the, the Fed's MLF, the Municipal Liquidity Facility. That would help help bridge the gap a little bit. So, but I, you know, MTA has, they've got some wood to chop if they borrow 2.6 billion from MLF and if they get, you know, a couple of billion or 3 billion or 4 billion from Washington, that will help, but they're still going to have to make some service cuts. The plan that they've put forward at MTA to get through is, is not sufficient to get them all the way through to the other side. So they're going to have to come up with some additional cuts. Maybe New York state is able to come up with some additional revenue, but that would be helpful. But you know, New York City economy it needs to be re-engaged. And that's, again, that's probably a little bit slower than the rest of the country. 
at large. So there, there's still some wood to chop. There, there is a strong desire with MTA to make sure that they maintain their investment grade rating. They have an enormous amount of debt outstanding. There's an enormous number of holders of New York MTA debt who I think are, are you know, would be supportive of, of helping MTA get through. So I think there's there's no magic pill that will fix MTA. I think it's going to take a combination of MLF money, some cuts, some state money, and some federal money to get the MTA through. New York City is probably in a more difficult situation. You know, they did get some CARES Act money. I think you know New York City is is probably looking at some cuts and some you know would benefit from some aid from New York. You know, some additional aid from the federal government. But you know that th- that's probably the uh, the least certain of the three right now. What's what's the the, pe- the course through right now? Okay, and it, and it's not just New York that's hitting some stresses. One of the other regions that has recently been in the news is Illinois, and you pointed out to me that voters recently rejected a constitutional amendment to allow a graduated income tax. What was the market's reaction? to both the proposal and, I guess, the rejection of the proposal. So this has been a really interesting story to me because, you know, coming coming into the election, I think most of the, a lot of the market, I think, thought that the proposal would pass and it would provide some breathing room for the Illinois budget. It it was defeated, you know, by, you know, a, you know, a meaningful margin. So it was not close, but it was defeated. Spreads actually have tightened coming into election day. And then they they eased the last couple of days. So at the end of October, 10-year Illinois GL was was plus 276 to the AAA. Subsequent to the news of the defeat of of the amendment, it it did widen to 337, but it has since tightened up a little bit to to plus 309. I think part of what's going on is this is suggesting that there is their political support for Illinois to rein in their their spending. And, And this this initiative, the proposal in, in Illinois and the proposal in California, both of them were defeated. What's interesting to me is it seems like so many of these proposed amendments in the past where the amendment is to tax somebody else but not me have, have enjoyed support. In both cases, both in California and in Illinois, where a lot of voters may have looked at these amendments, proposed amendments, and said, well, this is going to raise tax on the other, other taxpayer, not me. But it, they were both defeated. So I think that's actually an encouraging sign if, if the voters in Illinois, if the message is that we have a spending problem in Illinois, I think that's that's being perceived as good for the media market because that's what we would say in the media market is there's a spending problem. It's not a revenue problem. It's a, it's a spending problem. So if this is implying some increased discipline on the spending side, that would be good. Illinois still has a, a mountain of challenges ahead of them. Their backlog of unpaid bills, which uh, was 6.1 billion as of the end of June, climbed to 8.3 billion about a week ago. They still have pension problems to deal with, but there is buying going on in the marketplace. In October through Election Day, Illinois paper was two and a half percent of MSRB trade volume. Since then, it's been three percent. Customer buying has actually outweighed customer selling. So. I think hopefully this will lead to, you know, incremental improvements in spending discipline in Illinois. That would be a good thing. Triple Illinois paper makes up 20% of the triple triple B index, uh, the ICE index. 
So the triple B index is pretty wide. If you take out Illinois, you know, the index is, is, is still wide, but it's, it's dominated by Illinois. So, you know, the index is really tied to how, how's Illinois going. So let's move west a little bit. And California voters, as you mentioned, had a tax proposal on their ballots as well. They rejected Prop 15, which would have resulted in higher property taxes on commercial and industrial properties. Do you think this has been reflected in the California market? So this California is is a market that's that's traded pretty well. Of course, there's a high tax burden, so there's a, a strong incentive for Cal for wealthy Cal investors to buy Cal paper. But Cal is, has tightened nicely. So Cal again, ten-year ten Cal geos at the end of October were plus plus 19 to the AAA. They closed last night at plus 16. And California is another state that has seen a surprising strength in tax collections. And this is not to minimize the the difficulties that are being experienced by so many people in not just California but everywhere. There's you know un, there's unemployment, there's underemployment, there's there's stresses that come along with all of this. But the Legislative Affairs Office in California reported September revenue collections for the state's three largest taxes were ahead of budget by 42%. So that's the the personal income tax, corporation tax, and sales taxes, $4 billion over budget. Year-to-date, they're 20% ahead of budget. So there's there's plenty of challenges ahead in California, but again, the, the, the strength of the California economy a lot, a lot of revenues are still coming in. So, and the high tax burden, which is likely to go higher, is going to provide, you know, strong incentive for wealthy investors to continue to buy Cal paper, and the paper is trading pretty well. Thanks. So it, it sounds like there's enough going on in all parts of the country, <laughs> starting east, middle, and, and yeah. west coast. Exactly. Um, so let's cover some of the technicals. And muni issuance is up about 25% but an increasing share of the market is coming in the form of taxable bonds. Can you just help us understand what's driving that and if you think it'll continue? And uh, to put you on the hot seat, like any guesses at this point on 2021 trends? Okay, so yes, I do think that it's going to continue. From a municipal issuer perspective, issuers right now are trying to find any money that's laying around that they can pick up and help to fill their budget gaps. And refinancing older, higher rate debt is, is a fairly straightforward way to do that. Since tax reform eliminated the ability to do tax-exempt advance refunding deals, issuers do still have the flexibility to issue taxable bonds to refinance older tax-exempt bonds, and that's exactly what they're doing. They're able to do that because of the richness of the tax-exempt market right now. So the, the arithmetic works to be able to sell taxable debt at today's rates and pay off older tax exempt bonds, which seems counterintuitive. Part of the, the arithmetic is based on the couponing and munis where you have the 5%, you know, four or 5% coupon is preferred on tax exempts and, and issuers can sell taxable bonds at par. They also don't have the constraints from the IRS regulations as to what they do with the proceeds from a taxable issue, issue and they, they can put it together and come to market pretty quickly. And Aaron, the slides that you showed in, in your overview of what's going on in the IG market provide ample testimony to the appetite for, for credit paper in the taxable marketplace. What did you say? 1.7 trillion of IG paper price so far this year. 
forty billion price last week. I mean, that's that's a, a month, and that's a busy month in the media market. So there's an, an enormous amount of demand for for IG taxable paper, and for investors to be able to diversify into mini credit risk. There's ample demand for anything that a municipal issuer wants to bring in the taxable market. I do think if if I were a, a municipal finance banker. I would be encouraging municipal issuers to diversify their investor mix because of the the, distor- the the discrepancy between the individual income tax rate and the corporate tax rate that has taken most of the, the banks and insurance companies out of munis generally. I think introduces some risk to an issuer. So I think it, it's in their interest to have exposure to a different type of investors so that when they need to borrow, they'll be able to borrow in the market. So I think there's there's a variety of reasons why it's it's beneficial to large municipal issuers who are in the market on a regular basis to maintain that exposure to a different uh, class of investors. So looking into 2021, the financial stress is going to continue on these issuers. There are 101 billion of munis that are tax exempts that are callable beginning in 2021 that have a non-zero coupon. So how much of that gets called? Probably a pretty good chunk of it. In 2021, the, or excuse me, in 2020, the total amount of, of callable munis that have been redeemed or will have been redeemed this year, right now that's totaling 171 billion you know, plus maturing bonds. So I think that we'll see more taxable issuance in 2021 than we've, than we've had in 2020. At some point, the refund, the pace of refundings will slow down, but we may see some new money issuance as well as, as issuers are trying to figure out how to, to bond out as much as they can to free up cash flow elsewhere. That makes sense. <clears throat> so a question came in that I will ask you. How do you think about the outward migration from high tax states when it comes to looking at fundamentals? That's that's an important item to look at. Yeah, I think New York City is going to be a really interesting test case coming coming out of the pandemic because, you know, anecdotally, what we're hearing is commercial real estate, which I think has a little bit greater liquidity than than homeowners do. You know, commercial tenants can turn over pretty quickly. It sounds like a lot of the commercial property in New York City, it's getting repriced. So the question is, will that draw in a whole new set of potential tenants into the marketplace? If if that's the case and and we see maintenance of economic activity, that will provide some support for for workers and everything else that comes along with it. So it's but otherwise it, it's it's a very slow demographic shift. It it you know it it can't be overlooked, but I think it moves slowly enough. It's it's probably focused more on the the ultra high net worth or the, or the very wealthiest who might move for tax reasons. Certainly we saw the president move from New York City to Palm Beach, his, his, his residence. Not every, not every taxpayer has that flexibility, but it's, it's, it's going to add, continue to add pressure to the finances of, of some of these states, which, which is why some of the indicators, it's, it's been helpful to see. Like in New York, the Empire State Manufacturing Index has, has been you know, positive these last couple of months. That's, that's a good sign. So if the national economy can do well, that fixes a lot of problems and it fix, and it helps get past the risk of tax-induced migration as well. Yeah, it's, it's certainly an issue. I had a couple of friends in Chicago trying to think about 
like where do they go <laughs> if mm -hmm. that uh, graduated income tax was passed. Okay, we have a few minutes left and I just wanted to ask you about the Muni Outlook that you published in September. In there you laid out some of your picks and pans for the Muni market. Have you updated that list or I guess what are your thoughts on the what you what you like and dislike right now? So a couple of uh, thematic points that I made that I think are absolutely still still applied. Dealers are carrying a record low amount of inventory when and and that really gets revealed in increased volatility when, when we see prices moving around a little bit. Dealers are simply not willing to carry as much. So I think that that introduces volatility in the market, which which provides opportunity as well. You know, I talk about the 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 Muni crossover opportunity. I touched on this earlier. A's are cheap, double A's are rich. The double A trade was there about two weeks ago. It only lasted half of a week, I think, when the new issue supplies came in and those double A's got priced appropriately. And I think crossover buyers uh, came in and bought them. So that volatility is is a, a challenge as, as well as an opportunity. Mutual fund flows, which are a big driver of the market. The Lipper number last night for Muni's was negative for the first time. And well, it wasn't the first Lipper number that was negative, but I encourage folks don't overread into Lipper because we're also coming into the season when we're gonna start seeing some capital gains distributions out of some of the municipal bond funds. Some, a lot of them are not gonna have gains distributed, distributed, but I think we will see some behavioral changes. So that that's that will color the emotional view of the market. The, the picks that I laid out in October focus on liquidity, you know, large index eligible bonds, especially those owned by the large ETFs. I think those remain very liquid, even in, in choppy market conditions. I don't think we're, I think next week we'll see some decent supply, but then we're coming into uh, Thanksgiving and the holidays. So I think uh, new issue supply is going to be tapering off. Smaller and less liquid local GOs, I think, provide an opportunity for incremental income, incremental yield pickup, but not necessarily going to be as, as liquid. I do think that there is some opportunity still in airport credits, particularly for the larger ones that have good liquidity, good cash on hand we may see some choppiness still in that part of the marketplace. Thanks, Pat. While you were speaking, I went and found an article I read yesterday on Bloomberg talking about New York headline is New York worries top 1% will flee. And it says that the top 1% of New Yorkers reported a combined 133 billion of income and they pay 42.5% of total local income tax report collected by New York City. So I do think New York City, as you pointed out, is certainly a, a risk. Every day there's another headline that a hedge fund manager is setting up a Miami office and letting different employees, you know, any of their employees relocate to Miami. So certainly something to watch. One, one question I think probably for both of us that came in is markets jump tighter with Pfizer. So what happens when a second and a third announcement comes from the other pharma players. Is this old news at that point, or do you think this will be enough to push over the the virus surge and be viewed as a positive? You know, I think, yeah, there's a couple of sectors, I think, where the muni market is, is most affected by the virus, and it's it's New York City, it's it's Illinois, you know, these districts where the workers aren't coming into town 
and spending money and filling restaurants. So I think the the prospect for additional vaccines should hopefully, you know, maybe not accelerate the timeline of getting people back in the office, but if if it adds a little bit of greater certainty or or improved probability of getting people back into the office and getting people back onto airplanes, I think that's constructive. With the the transportation sectors and the you know travel dependent sectors, it's going to be a, a long ramp up. You know, I think about you know Las Vegas or McCormick Place in Chicago. You know, a conference organizer has to decide six, nine, twelve, twenty-four months in advance about whether or not they're going to have a conference. So, a vaccine could magically appear tomorrow and be distributed next week to everybody. And it would still take a long time for McCormick Place and for Las Vegas to fill up again. So hotel revenues are going to lag. Airline revenues are going to lag. But I think if if we can draw a line under the coronavirus and say it's we're, we're now past the worst, I think investors will begin coming in and, and, and seeking out yields where they think that the, the worst is past and that they can pick up some incremental yield and be patient as as things begin to improve. Yeah, and I would agree. That's something we've certainly seen in the IG market where investors know things are going to be bad for the next several months, but they're looking much longer term in, in giving these companies some runway. I do think if we get an announcement that more vaccines are coming, it helps eliminate that issue that I mentioned with Pfizer's announcement is that they just don't have the capacity to produce enough vaccines to have everyone in the world have one. So the more names that come out, I think that just lends support to the, the hope that we can kind of get through this and get back to the normal, whatever, whatever that looks like next year or the years mm-hmm. beyond. Yeah. But we are almost out of time. And Pat, I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining us today. It's always good to hear about what's going on in the muni space, even as, as I mentioned, if people aren't investing through their roles and their jobs, it's always interesting from a personal perspective as well to think about what some options are. Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the excerpt from our weekly wrap. Please stay tuned for future episodes of our podcast. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com, or if you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit size disclaimer, all price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complaint in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Received by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.